Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Paul Lloyd, who is a 35-year veteran. He doesn't like to be called a veteran because both of us are dinosaurs. We've both been around since pretty much the year dot. And his first ever sale in IT was an Apple II to a Coleman. So today, we're going to be talking about the channel and how the technology landscape has changed. Paul, can you give a quick introduction to who you are and a bit about your pedigree? bit about my pet your pedigree on pedigree <laughs> so i started work as a swim pool attendant as it happens but then moved into the it the it channel as you say some 30 odd years ago joined scc in the midlands when it was a relatively small company moved down south with them 20 years ago a little over and set up their southern region which is the one region in the country that they'd never managed to get much traction in so I built their business to 90 million a year, six sales branches, six sales people in each branch, moved on, joined ICL for a little while, and then got involved in the CRM space as it happened, but I mean the, the sort of software solution market space. And since then, I've done lots of different things. So I've worked for big resellers, I've worked for little resellers, I've sold outsourcing, I've sold enterprise, I've sold SME. I've worked within distribution and I've spent probably three and a half years with vendors. So I've got a reasonably solid 360 degree view of the IT channel. And that's where I work now. So now I work with typically smaller or small, largely MSPs around the selling structure, go to market, sales story, and helping them and coaching them in terms of going out and winning their business. Fantastic. Okay. So a lot of my audience are familiar with the term channel, but they don't necessarily understand the full impact and how important it is. Would you mind giving a quick introduction from your perspective as to the vendors, managed service providers, resellers, distributors, to give people an understanding of what their different functions are? I think one of the challenges at the moment is that a clear nomenclature for what each sort of each area of the channel. So, I mean, simplistically, vendors, when they want to scale their business and they want to do it relatively inexpensively, will look to partners to sell their products. So, it tends to be products being hardware, software, and the like. So, they'll go out to market. There's a whole raft of organizations that are there selling those then to the end user. Sitting in between that, a lot of the American vendors will use distribution such that from their perspective, it, it makes the whole thing, again, more economic. But I mean, essentially, what you've then got is you've got a shed and a credit line to the reseller who then sells to the end user. So it's a two-level channel. So we have vendor to distribution, distribution to the either the reseller or the MSP or the service provider or the value-added reseller as they are these days who then sell to the end user. And the only one that actually pays any money is the end user. And they're the people who pay all of the salaries all the way back up the chain. And to a large extent, in my mind, get the worst deal out of it. So that's interesting. I mean, one of the things that we've discussed in the past, and I know both of us feel fairly strongly about, is this whole thing around deal registration. First of all, can you explain what it is? Yeah. So... Most of the things that happen within that channel happen for the benefit of the vendor. 
So, and because they're the lead partner, and to some extent, they're the ones that pay all the money. So, what they always used to have an issue with was getting a forecast. So, their challenge is getting a forecast from their partners, because clearly, in the old days, HP would make thousands of machines and stick them in a big shed that wait for them to be sold. But with the advent of Dell, some 30 years ago and kind of just-in-time manufacture, they can't afford to do that. So what they needed was some sensible forecasting mechanism. So what they created was this notion of deal registration where they pay the typically the reseller, they'll pay the reseller additional margin for declaring an interest up front. So reseller finds a prospect, company, the coalman. The coalman wants to buy some kit. They then tell the vendor. And the vendor registers that to them and gives them additional margin if they win the business. But what they also do is they preclude other resellers from getting that price. So it actually disadvantages the end user because they typically they cannot then go and buy it from somewhere else without lots of hassle. And my concern is always the confidentiality of the information that you register with the vendor. So you actually tell the vendor who your prospect is, what the size of the order is, what's going on, when you're expecting it to close and all those sort of typical deal type information. And then the vendor logs that somewhere, but you've got no control over where that goes. So today, as I said to you before we started, I mean, you know, the, I came aboard, this happened to my knowledge first in around about 2005, and it hasn't really changed. And I've been working with a, a reseller in London recently, and you know the deal registration determines whether or not they'll bid for business, because they may find an end user, but the deal's already already been registered by somebody else, and therefore they can't get the additional margin of the competitive price. Or the bigger resellers will have people employed purely for registering deals, so they'll actually be have people on the phone and they'll get a sniff of an interest. And they'll register that um, up front. So it distorts and takes the competitiveness to a large extent out of the whole channel. Well, this raises a number of really serious questions. And is it any wonder that there's so much distrust by end users towards vendors? Um, but the first thing is that obviously it does make it less competitive. But in my experience, when organizations are registering these deals, very often, there's very poor progression being made. And so the opportunity is sat there fallow. The end user has a problem that it genuinely needs to have fixed. And because of the lack of skill and competence within the vendor or the large reseller, then there's little or no progress. And then things die on the vine. So you hear this crappy statistic about... 65% of the decision has already been made by the time they invite in the salesperson. Well, is it any wonder? If vendors are behaving like this, then what they're in effect doing is they're selling selfishly and they're creating a poor customer experience and a poor partner experience. They're creating a poor partner experience. I think what their expectation is, is that the partner will smooth it over and compensate. I mean, equally, what would potentially happen is and I've seen this recently, there was an opportunity for Lenovo 
So this reseller that I work with in London, they dig up an opportunity for Lenovo, and it was not massive, but tens of. They speak to Lenovo, and it's already been deal-regged by a another organization. So they can't get the price. Now, we would all argue that it's not all about price, but when you get to a certain level, 5 or 10%, which is the kind of numbers that we're talking, can make a significant difference. So what they ended up doing was going in with a different product because they couldn't get the price on the product that the client had actually that made their mind up to some extent. That's the way they want to go. Then the only option that they have is to introduce another product, which wastes time because it wastes the salesperson's time and it, everybody in the chain wastes time. I think a lot of end users, a lot of the bigger ones, have kind of worked it out and they'll play the game along the way. But it's not. The industry is not all about the big partners and the big and the enterprise accounts. There's you know, thousands of smaller partners and tens of thousands of smaller end users who just get a raw deal out of it. It just doesn't work. But what it does do is it gives the vendors a forecast, which is kind of where they all started. Well, this then raises the obvious question. If you do have a deal reg system, what are the rules that need to be put in place in order to make sure that those opportunities are advancing? or you lose the reg. That's all well and good. But if you're working with your biggest partners, then who's going to go in and tell them that they're going to lose a registration on X, Y, and Z? There are rules. They've all got slightly different rules. I haven't seen the absolute detail of all of them in recent, in the last year or so, but the rules are there to be broken. It's soft cap, for argument's sake. We've got 600 people on the telephone phoning doing their job and they do an excellent job and they're a great company and I'm but you know using them as an example then they are registering they've got 600 people on the phone looking for opportunities they find opportunities and they register them now it may be that the order's supposed to come in within 60 days or 90 days but if you're a reseller that's actually building a solution from a variety of vendors because the vendors expect the reseller channel to put their products together to make them work, then you could end up with, you've got to close one piece of the order in 60 days or another piece in 90 days. And so again, it doesn't work. It only works if you sell in a box. Now, if I'm selling you 10 boxes and that's then they're all HP boxes, they're all Lenovo boxes or Microsoft software, whatever it happens to be, then that's one order, it's one vendor, works fine. But as soon as you start adding each individual vendor's rules, to the deal registration of, then the whole thing becomes inordinately complex and the smaller partners lose out because they don't have the people to manage and watch and the deal registrations. Now, you could argue that the vendors aren't really interested in the smaller partners, but they would argue differently. But, I mean, largely, they're not really set up because of the economics of it, but there are, in this country, 10,000-ish companies that turn over below 10 million pounds in the IT channel. There's only 300 that do more. So in my mind, the SME space gets a run deal, I suppose. is the. I think it does. That was one of the reasons why we wrote the book. And what we were really focused on is those smaller to slightly larger, small, almost medium-sized vendors. And working with their channel, helping them to grow an effective special forces unit rather than going out and creating a land army. 
because one of the things that I've noticed is that recruitment of partners is very promiscuous. So vendors have a tendency to go out and recruit anyone with a pulse instead of being really selective about who they take on as partners. And then the onboarding process is basically product training, getting them stuck into the partner portal and then phoning them up once or twice a month saying, what have you got for me, Paul? Nothing. Great, I'll speak to you next month. Or yelling down the phone to them because they want their pipeline and they want their forecast. I have to say that's the American way. And obviously, a lot, the majority, if not all of the big vendors, come over expecting to conquer the world. But they work on the premise that if they sign up 300 resellers and 10% of them sell one, they've sold 30. As opposed to if they've only got 100 and 10% sell one, they've only sold 10. I ran ClearSwift, which is a UK company, UK software, UK, and there aren't many of them. When I started, they had 278 reseller partners. And by and large, they were processing renewals. And that was it. And we needed to grow the business. And the business had gone backwards for four or five years. So because I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool kind of vendor person, if you want, I actually went out to the top 12 of their partners and said, are you prepared to recommend only us in that particular area, product solution area? And if you are, we'll work with you. And what we did was we reduced the channel by taking the top, and in the end, we ended up with six. So essentially, I said, qualifier is a million pounds a year, which none of them were doing, but you know, we'll work towards that. And we reduced the partners. Then we'd still got all the kind of the historical ones, but we chose to work with the top six. And we doubled their business in 12 months. And if anybody wanted to join the club, there were a set of rules, and one of them qualifying was a million pounds worth of revenue. This confirms my research, which is that on average, the A-plus players constitute 2% of your partner network. Mm. And in your case, 6 out of 290 is 2%. And I've seen this time and time again. You see the tiny fraction of the profitable revenue and consistent revenue comes from a minuscule proportion of yeah. the partner network. I mean, what we did was then was we actually said to distribution, we're going to deal with these six and you can manage and grow the others because that's what they tell me that they were good at. You know, we're going to nurture, we're going to build your channel and those sorts of things. But of course, what happened was we had a new CEO who was ex-RSA and ex-American corporation who said, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to go out and recruit 300 resellers. We're going to do it through distribution because we need a much wider, as you've said, you know, we need a land army to go out and win business. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You end up wasting time and effort and having a lot of very despondent people because the resellers, unless you're of value to them and they are value to you, so you've got that, it's a two, it genuinely is a two-way street where you value each other, what, you mean a partnership? A partnership. <laughs> but that, but partnership's an overused word, isn't it? That's the problem. But I went out to them and said, unless I can get my number to the point where it's of value to you, you're not going to take us seriously. So let's look at doing that. Then we're an important part of their business. Then they're going to work with us. But if you've got somebody who's only doing three or 400 pounds a year or whatever the numbers are, then, of course, you're not of any importance. And they'll just take the mick. 
you go out and you meet them, and what do they say? What's the margin, and where are your leads? So the channel account managers, when they go and talk to their partners, the conversation is, what's the margin, and where are your leads? And I used to have to go out and say, let's not mention the M word until we get to the end of the meeting, because there is going to be some, obviously. And they're all slightly different. Some of them are just selling products and some of them are selling solutions and some are just selling services. So you've got to understand that. But you've got to position it so it's a value to them and get them on board to go out and sell it for you. And that doesn't happen in volume unless you're a brand. I mean, if you're a big brand, if you're HP, people go to buy HP, don't they? They go on the internet, look for a kit, HP pops up, they ring up and say, can we buy an HP, please? But if you're not, and there's, there's not many kind of tier one vendors, then beyond that, you want people to go out and sell it and work with it and introduce it to their clients and more. This is really interesting because this ties back to the point that I was making earlier around partner experience. With that 2%, with those six, talk me through what the experience became for those six partners and how did you support them? We supported them completely in many respects. We had a team of, of internal salespeople at the time. And so we gave them telemarketing time, gave being the operative word. And then on any leads and big deals that we got, we would actually work with the appropriate partners. So they all had to declare what area of the business or what area of the market they were interested in. So they couldn't say, we want to do everything. I mean, I couldn't stop them doing anything, but I would only work with them in certain areas proactively. We had a lot of accounts that we needed managing and developing, so they were divvied up amongst them. And then if we got inquiries, it went to them and vice versa. So they had to buy a bit of demo kit. So to qualify to be a premier partner, they bought a demo kit. They got extra margin. We did extra promotions and everything revolved around them. And then, as I say, if anybody wanted to join the club, they weren't precluded. It was just merely the fact that they would have to meet the joining criteria. I took them all to lunch once, so I'd got all of them sitting around a table at the IOD. My approach was, there's no point in kicking the shit out of each other in terms of your margin. Let's all work together and develop a market and develop the business overall. And it worked really well. How much time did you spend with each of the owners of those businesses to really get to grips with understanding them, what they wanted to achieve, where they were, where they were headed, problems that they were facing so that you could support them? I think initially, because you know most, you know most of that. And one of my frustrations being in the partner was the number of people who turn up and said, tell us about your business. Because you've got two dozen vendors and they stick some rookie account manager on your account. And the first thing they do is they come in and say, can you tell me about your business? And you go, I ain't got time for that. Go away and find out. You've dealt with me for, or you've dealt with the business for five years. Go and tell me what's going on. So at the time, typically there were security resellers. So we knew what they did. We knew what markets they were in. We knew their history. And I went out initially and said, do you want to work with us? And this is what's going to happen. These are the accounts again and got to understand the way that they wanted it to work. And then they had a very close relationship with their account manager. And I, I mean, as, the, as the, essentially the country manager, I would contact them at least once a month 
and any deals that were going on and, and sort of manage them with a small M on an ongoing basis. But it was all done in partnership. And you can't do that with dozens. You can't have that level of support if you've got dozens and dozens of partners. One of the observations that Dave and I came up with from our research and from 30 plus years each in the industry is that the majority of salespeople who work in channel management on the vendor side, unfortunately, are not great. I've got a fairly low opinion of what passes for average in direct sales, but in channel, it was substantially worse. And the sad thing is that a channel manager, their profile actually is much closer to a GM, to a general manager. And a channel chief is much closer to a CEO than it is to a sales director. And the problem is that direct sales is the golden child and channel is the gingerhead, bastard, ugly stepdaughter and all the money, the talent, the training. I mean, when we were writing the book, when we first started doing the research, did a search on Amazon, 364,000 titles came up with direct sales, 150 for channel. Today, that stands at 180 for channel. Now, when you consider that 75% of every product sold on the planet today across all 26 vertical markets is sold through partners, there's a massive disconnect and a huge opportunity here. And the way I'm seeing the market move is, in fact, in 2018, it was Coca-Cola that fired, I think it was 18,000 salespeople and put all of their sales through their partners. And you're starting to see that happen more and more and more. And I think what's likely to happen is the vendor sales team will become almost exclusively channel, apart from some of those very large enterprise deals. But as technology becomes more complex, it's the partners that are going to have the relationship, not the vendor. The vendor is just one component. In security, there may be 12 different vendors involved. And the end customer doesn't want to have 13 different points of contact or 24 points of contact because you've got the vendor and their partners. They're going to want one point of contact. I mean, to a large extent, from early on, that was where the channel came from, was because it doesn't matter at any point where you chip in over the last 30 years. There's always, there's no vendor that does everything. And even if they try, there's elements of it that don't do very well. So you're always going to be in a multi-vendor scenario. and. You know, increasingly, I mean, if you look at the security landscape, then every different area of protection is provided by a different vendor. So the partner, whether it's an MSP or a value-added reseller, has to put those together, make them work together because the end user wants a one-stop shop. 30-odd years ago, they wanted a one-stop shop and they've gone through a, we can buy everything on the internet, and they've realized if they buy everything on the internet, yes, it's cheaper, but it comes in 12 boxes and not one. And then it takes them hours to put it all back together again and get it to work. And then they have to phone somebody because they don't know what they're doing. So they've kind of gone full circle now and coming back to the, the concept of a one-stop shop. The vendors, they don't understand it. The, the account managers, I've had some very good dealer account managers, channel account managers, yeah. and they are absolutely worth their weight in gold. But the vast majority of them aren't. And they come out and they do what they're told because 
they're programmed and they come out and they ask you about your business and they ask you what deals you're going to do this month. Then they'll ask you why you haven't done those deals this month. And then they'll ask you the following month if you're going to do the deals that you didn't do last month. <laughs> and can I add these on the quarter? And I've got my quarter target to do because we've got to report to the NASDAQ at the end of the quarter. So do you want to buy some more? Because you can have them a bit cheaper. And all these things are going on all the time. But the good ones are the ones that form that for you and come to you and say, I think your business would benefit from doing this. This is how it fits. This is how it works. And actually works with and identifies the support that your salespeople need. And in some cases, say no, because not enough of them say no. They'll go off and hide behind somebody else telling them no. But when they're involved and when they're working with you, they are literally worth their weight in gold because they're a channel to report back to you what's going on in the real world. They should be your ambassador in the vendor. They should be fighting your corner. But now, all too often, they don't add value. There was a thing on LinkedIn recently, and I put, you know, each touch point for a channel account manager should be adding value. Absolutely. Well, I sat in this reseller in London. I've got to be ever so careful I don't even say name it. And there was an account manager in, in there from a vendor, it doesn't matter which one, who was arguing with his boss over deals that he'd forecast in the month. So he's using my client's office as a free hot desk. So he's gone in there under the pretense of being there to help the sales team. He sat doing his own job in their office, and he was arguing with his boss about deals in his forecast and his pipeline. And, and I was gobsmacked. <laughs> he put the phone down, and then he had a go about his boss, and he had a go about the company to me. Who's, I mean, I'm not even an employee of the company's office. It was there. Still a lot of confidence in the vendor? There's no appreciation, I suppose. And I'm going to come and work in your office one day a week. That'll help. How will it help? What are you going to do when you're doing that? I just want half an hour. When I was at SCC, I had the whole of the south of England. I had 60-odd salespeople. And I got vendors saying, we just want half an hour of your time. Yeah, okay. So there's at least 35, 40 vendors, at least. And you all want half an hour of my time. I mean, where's that going to work? Unless that's adding. Now, if you're going to ask me lots of questions, why don't you tell me things? So when we were researching the book, one of the things that was really clear was the best account managers were training, coaching, and deal midwifing. And whenever they touched the partner or the end user, they were bringing genuine value. And those guys absolutely worth their weight in gold. We interviewed about 60 of them. And they're right at the top of their game, every one of them. And the difference between them and the high polloi was frightening. Now, tell me this. Was it Clearview? Clear Swift. Clear Swift, sorry. With Clear Swift, how much train sales training did you offer to your partners, helping them to actually sell stuff? They were helped with selling stuff that wasn't necessarily just ours. Because of my experience, I suppose, as much as anything, it wasn't a product training. Because if you talk to most vendors about yeah. selling things, they come and they do a product pitch. That's not sales training. That's product training. Well, yeah. But if you go to most vendors and ask for sales training, that's what you get. Absolutely. So what we would do is you know, we would work them through. I have a simple sales process that I've used for years. 
and we would get them to use that because we need to map those deals anyway. So they would work with us on that or they'd use their own. In terms of strict sales training, it was very little because that has to be done, in my mind, it has to be done within the auspices of the business. It's not any single vendor can't really do that. They can help and they can point you in the right direction, but I'm not entirely sure that you training their salespeople is the necessarily the right thing to do. Okay, we can agree to disagree. Well, <laughs> one of the, the question marks that goes through the CEO and CFO's head of the vendor is why should I train my partners when they're going to be selling my competitors' stuff? But what actually happens in the real world is if you train them to sell, they will sell your stuff and they become increasingly loyal because you're putting money in their back. The fact that they happen to sell other people's stuff, they're going to do that anyway. And it's a scarcity mentality that holds people back. What I'm really curious about then is how much coaching you're giving to your partners. There was a fair amount of coaching because there was a lot of partner selling. We weren't just phoning them up and asking them where they were. I mean, we would look at how we could genuinely help and support and and at different points, make sure that all the ducks were in a line. And certainly the amount of time it took was determined by the size of the order in some respects. But, I mean, a big order for, for ClearSwift was 25, 30 grand a year. So that was significant. And we would work with them and partner them as the vendor. So we would be in there supporting them and, and doing what you would expect vendors to do. Tell me this then. Did they give you access to the end user? Yes, because that was a part of the agreement. Right. Okay. And I can't this, help them if I can't get access to the end user. Precisely. And this is my point. The number of times I've come across people in, for the last 30 years where they will not let the vendor anywhere near the end user because they don't trust them further, they can spin. In the context of what I'd done, I'd gone to them and said, this is a partnership. It works both ways. I went around each one of them and asked them for their, a list of their customers. And I was told categorically by not only the people I worked for, the people that worked for me, that I'd never get it. So as I sat with each of them and I went through what I was proposing, that I understood that what we needed was a trusting relationship where we worked together, blah, 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 because I'd been on the other side of the fence, which is, was my biggest advantage in that scenario. And I asked each of them for a list of their customers. And I got a list of their customers without exception. Now, I didn't get all the phone details and the contact details. I got a list of the companies that they dealt with so that we could then cross-reference that against the people that we were targeting to make sure we were targeting them with the right partner. And would I have done that with most of the vendors I've ever worked with? Probably not. I had a situation, I did a, a turnaround two or three years ago, and they were a large HP reseller. And I had a situation where their leasing salesman sent a list of all of the deals that the company had got registered with HP to all of the salespeople that worked in the company, asking if there's anything he could do to help them close their deals. So he sent the complete list of the deals that we had registered with HP to each of the salespeople that worked within the reseller so they all saw each other's deals and how much each deal was worth. And one of them was working his notice. That makes a good deal of sense. I can see why that would work. <laughs> I don't understand why you're doing a job. <laughs> this comes back down to something that we're really passionate about, certainly within 
the context of the framework of the book, which is that you have a right to create an upfront agreement in terms of what you want to happen, what you don't want to happen, what the expectations are for both sides, what will it deliver, timeframes, acceptable and unacceptable behavior, how you're going to communicate, how you're going to work with the salespeople, what the targets are and what everybody's responsibilities are, pipeline, payment, account management, and actually operating as equals. Because too often, there is this disparity between the vendor and particularly the smaller partners. And they're anything but partners. They just treat them like a a cheap or free resource to be used and abused. I think that is the road to extinction. Well, it's, you're right. There's this kind of notion that I think it comes from the mentality of if we get enough people signed up and we can generate a bit of interest, then we're going to sell more. It's almost the complete converse of that. I've done a couple of projects for vendors coming into the UK. And I mean, I will be doing more over the course of the next year or so. I would always say to them, you know, you need a dozen resellers. You don't need to go and recruit 30, 40, 50, 100. If you get a dozen and you work with them and you build their business with you and you're important to them and they're important to you, when they start to make money out of it, they will tell their peers. And then their peers will come to you to build your network out and then you can dictate what it is that you want them to do. Dictate's not the right word. You can encourage them to work with you on a set of rules rather than go around just trying to sign people up for the sake of it. Well, for anyone who's thinking about going out using the channel as your principal route to market, there are some really critical questions. The first one is, can you pin your logo to their office door? Is it some bloke operating out of his back bedroom? Is somebody besides the CEO the top salesperson? Do they have a sales culture? How do they get new business? What kind of reputation do they have? Are they purely technical or sales? Are your business cultures compatible and complementary? How easy are they to do business with from the outset? How do you feel? How do they feel about you talking to their customers and will they let you and under what conditions? Uh, do their salespeople ask good questions? Because this is a really good indicator as to whether or not you're going to have any luck getting these people to sell. Do they welcome your onboarding process over that first 120 days? Because in the first 90 days, if you're not putting money in their back, they're going to go quiet on you. Will they let you train their salespeople as if they were your own? I know Paul and I have a disagreement over Will they do regular pipeline review meetings with you? Do they agree what good looks like with you? And have you identified what win-win looks like? Now, if you can't get good answers to those, don't take them on as your partner. It's just crazy. I was talking to one mid-sized vendor not long ago, and it cost them 14 grand to recruit a partner. When you take into account the number of backward-forwards meetings, the emails, all that kind of stuff, legal, putting them on to the portal, all the training, accreditation, and all that kind of companies, it's 14 grand a pop. Now, with one vendor, they operate in the print management space. They've got 1,000 partners, of whom 200 produce something. The other 800 produce nothing. They might have produced one deal in all the time they've been in business. They still have their logo on the website. And of those 200, 20 of them, produce over 40% of their income, 2%. It's ludicrous. What they should do is they should cut them and work with those 20 
and build up the importance of their business to that 20 and vice versa. Absolutely. And then they'll get 21 when one of them goes to an event or they meet their peers and they say, we're doing a really good job with XYZ vendor. They've treated us where it's nice and fair. We're working as partners and we're making a good margin and we're, we're building a good, strong business with them. And then they get a phone call that says, we understand you're working with XYZ. Can we talk to you? And then it grows organically. But the problem is that most of the vendors, they want to do it too quickly. Yeah. They want, they haven't got, I'm not saying they haven't got the money to do it slowly, but they want to do it quickly because somewhere somebody's going, well, if we're going to use the channel, this is what we're going to do because this is what we've always done. And, you know, we want 500 partners. And so go and get 500 partners. So don't be promiscuous, slow down to speed up, work with a special forces unit and help them be successful. And if you put them at the front and center of everything that you do, odds are they will produce, they'll be loyal, they'll allow you access to the end user customer and you'll grow. Yeah. Yeah. Fair summary? Absolutely. Cool. Okay. My favorite question always if you had a golden ticket and you could tell the idiot Paul, 23 years old, what not to do or some good sage bit of advice, what would you tell him? We're talking about career, are we not? Families and wives. <laughs> um, I'm staying out of marital affairs. Well, I said, my daughter came to me, right? So my daughter went to uni. She came back. She ended up selling for the IT job board. She didn't have enough money to go off. And she traveled for 12 months, more or less. And then she came back and said, what do you think I should do? And the hardest part of being a parent, in my mind, is when they say to you, what do you think I should do when I leave school? Or what should my career be? Because the only thing that you know is what you've done or what your wife's done. And obviously it's important because at some point you're expecting them to look after you. So I said to her, if you're looking to work in, in the technology space in sales, then go and work for a vendor. And, and if I'd have actually worked for IBM or one of the big vendors way back when, I would have had a completely different career. Um, would that have been in direct sales or in channel? It would have been in direct sales because it's only been, it was only latterly that you actually start to realize the value of a decent channel account manager and they never earned as much. So, but the important thing would be getting the vendor badge on your CV, in the industry that I'm in, that's actually incredibly important. You can get a job without meeting you if you've got the right vendor badge on the CV. So I worked through the channel. I built a business. I've done lots of things that tick lots and lots of boxes, but I never worked for the vendor, the big brand, if you want. Uh-huh. And I mean, SCC, that they're not now, but I mean, they were the second biggest VAR reseller, whatever you want to call them, in, in the country. But that's where they were. They weren't a major brand. And Jess went to work for Rackspace, somewhere everybody's heard of. And then she got a job at Salesforce. And she'll never have to worry about getting a job again, however good, bad, or indifferent she is. And of course, she's absolutely marvelous because she's my daughter. <coughs> but, you know, she's got Salesforce on a CV. So that's something that you can't learn. You've got to be told almost because. You wouldn't know unless, again, unless you've got family or, you know, but I think when it comes down to it is go to a well-known brand and then do what you want because you can always revisit it. 
as opposed to there's lots and lots of channel partners. I mean, I talk a lot about SoftCap because they just happen to be the best, but they've got 600 graduates. But in 10 years' time, SoftCap, they sell stuff. They're not IBM. They're not HP. They're not, or even the trendy vendors, I guess, these days. You know, the various SaaS companies would be my advice. Okay, fair enough. And in terms of great books that you've read that have had a big influence on your life, your career, can you think of any? Again, I, I never actually read a lot until relatively recently. And, and because I do what I do, and we do something similar but, but slightly different, I tend to read books these days just to make sure that I know what I'm saying works because I've done it for years and that's fine. And I end up buying and reading bits of books to kind of reaffirm that I know what I'm talking about because nobody ever says I don't. Um, so there are three books that have been written by an American, which is the only downside in it, by a guy called Mike Weinberg. So he's got sales management simplified, and he's just come out with a new one called, which is actually hashtag sales truth, which is all about lots of the myths and nonsense that people are talking. Sales has all changed, and it's all got to be done via social media and, and all that sort of business. And the reason that those three books were key for me is that it's very straightforward, it's very blunt and almost very basic. So as a consequence, it fits. If I was going to write a book, it would be sales simplified. And I recommend all the people I work with that they get certainly the, the sales simplified. Sale, hashtag sales truth, which only came out about six weeks ago, is well worth a read if you want to contextualize all these experts that have never actually made a living out of selling things, just telling people how everything's changed. Right. And, the, and then the only other one that's possibly had an effect would be The Go-Giver. Yeah, Bob Berg. Bob Berg. And, and I've read all of the three or four, and but The Go-Giver was, was interesting for me because there's certain aspects of it that I've, all, I've always done, but it tends to legitimize it. And so, yeah, I mean, any one of those. Fantastic. Paul, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I hope we get to do this again. And can you give people details of how to get hold of you? Yeah, sure. So my email is paul at sellerly, S-E-L-L-E-R-L-Y.co.uk. I'm on LinkedIn, and my URL is LinkedIn slash P. Lloyd. Telephone is always easier on my mobile, which is 07764-247-444. Ring me. I'll always answer it, and I'll talk to anybody. Fabulous. Paul Lloyd, thank you very much. This is Marcus Cowkey from the Inquisitor Podcast signing off. If you'd like to talk to Paul, please uh, get in touch with him. If you'd like to find out more about the Channel Sales Excellence Program that Dave Davies and I are putting together off the back of our book, Making Channel Sales Work, then please get in touch. We are looking to help six vendors in the three to 50 million mark grow by 200% compound per annum over the next six to seven years to help you get to a billion dollars. So that's the big challenge and nothing like a big